You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to Psalm 98. I think everyone's found their place. Psalm 98. I'll sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre and with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning, and we pray, Father, that you would teach us, you would instruct us, you would guide us, you would lead us. Father, you would open our hearts to receive your word and open your glorious word and truths to our hearts, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Our psalm this morning calls us to sing to the Lord a new song. And the Scriptures call us from time to time to do that. In fact, if you look at Psalm 96, there you see uh, the same charge. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. And um, in the Psalter itself, I think there's probably about uh, six of these, I do believe, if memory serves me correctly. I know Psalm 33 has one. Psalm 149 has one. I think there are a couple of others. The book of Revelation has a couple of instances where we're called to sing a new song. And um, why the call to sing a new song? Uh, well, it's because the Lord has done a marvelous work. And after the Lord does this marvelous work, how are we to respond? Well, singing, responding with singing is one of the most um, glorious ways that we can respond to the, the mighty things that he has done. And we might ask ourselves, okay, what is the occasion of Psalm 98? And it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty clear right in front of us. You'll notice in the last line of verse 1 is the word salvation. You'll notice in the first line of Psalm two, or verse 2 is salvation. And you'll notice in the last line of verse 3 is the word salvation. Now, you suppose the Holy Spirit's trying to get our, our uh, attention <laughs> to the idea of salvation. <laughs> uh, oftentimes, that's the case. When we see things like that being repeated, it's being repeated for emphasis. And uh, salvation is clearly in view. And last, uh, last week, we took a look at a passage that in many ways is quite dark, and I think that it, it serves to give us a, a new appreciation of just what salvation is 
And for the sake and benefit of review, I don't want to go into all of it, but why don't we just turn there for a moment to Isaiah 24? Just because our memories are such that we have a tendency to forget. But these messages here uh, are indeed connected. There's some connectivity. And there's actually some connections between Isaiah 24 and Psalm 98 that I will, uh, I will admit that I've never seen before until uh, really this week in terms of studying and preparing. And I think there are marvelous, uh, there's a marvelous connection here that I, I want us all to see. We look at Psalm 20, or, uh, Isaiah 24, and last week you recall, I spent some time developing that passage that is beginning with uh, chapter 13, Isaiah is pronouncing judgment upon all these nations. The Lord actually is pronouncing judgment through Isaiah to all these nations. And uh, chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, all the way through uh, chapter 23, pronouncing judgment upon particular nations. And in uh, chapter 24, here the whole thing culminates uh, in judgment upon the whole earth. And sometimes we'll ask this question, what is this world coming to? Well, Isaiah 24 answers what this world is coming to. And in verse 1, uh, we see, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. Verse number 2, we see that, that this work that the Lord is going to do is comprehensive. Uh, there's not going to be one single unbelieving soul that will escape it. It makes no difference if you're a common person or a priest, if you're a slave or a master, if you're a maid or a mistress. It makes no difference what station in life you're in. Uh, an economic station is not going to insulate you uh, from this. If we meet the Lord with persistent unbelief, it isn't going to matter if we're a millionaire or a billionaire or even a trillionaire. It's not going to insulate anyone from what is happening. Verse 3, the earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered. We spend a little time talking about that. To plunder something is to carry away everything that is valuable. And everything that is valuable is going to be uh, carried away. As I was praying this morning, it's uh, talking about something that's valuable. How valuable are the memories that Sunday school teachers sow in the hearts of their children. How valuable is that? And imagine being a Sunday school, uh, in Sunday school and then rejecting that gospel that is continually given to you, continually given to you, and then leading a life to uh, continual, of continual rejection of the gospel, uh, only to meet this judgment that's coming, and even that memory being extracted when everything is plundered. You see the, you see the extent of this. Um, Verse 4, the earth is mourning and withering. The world is languishing. Verse 5 is important to hold on to. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. In other words, all creation is, is groaning, if you will. Paul brings that out in Romans 8, doesn't he? That all creation groans, waiting for the consummation of all things. In essence, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, there the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. The curse that has been on the earth since Genesis 3 uh, uh, verse number six, uh, the wine mourns, the vine languishes because it will not give up its grapes. Um, verse 10, the wasted city is broken down. Verse 11, there's an outcry in the streets. Uh, verses 17, uh, terror and pit and snare. I mean, we're getting the gist of it. It's not my 
intentions this morning to just review everything that we did last week, but you'll recall at one point last week, after we developed this, I asked everybody to stop, and we all stopped, and I suggested that we listen to the text. And as we listened to the text, what did we hear? We heard singing, didn't we? Now, of course, I'm speaking figuratively. I didn't hear any singing literally in my ears, but we can hear singing from verse 14. If you look at verse 14, what is there? They lift up their voices. They sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. And, and, and remarkably, they're, sh- they're, they're shouting from the west. This is coming from the west. In some places of the Holy Land, what is west? Tyre and Sidon are west. They're the coastland cities that are, that are being judged in, in chapter 23. But beyond that, what lies west of the Holy Land? It's the Gentiles. It's a way of saying all of the earth. They sing. They're shouting for joy. Therefore, as a result of this, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Verse 16, from the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. Now, is there anywhere we could go in Scripture to get some more detail about this singing? And this is the connection that I've never seen until this past week. And the answer is yes, there are places we can go in Scripture to get more details of the singing that we hear in verses 14, 15, and 16, and that would be the Psalms 96, 97, and 98. And especially Psalm 98. You'll notice that Psalm 98, if you turn back there again, if you look at the title of Psalm 98, it simply says, a psalm. And commentators, of course, point out to that, that this is unique to Psalm 98. It's a psalm, and it's rightfully considered a prophetic psalm. Why? Because it's looking down the corners of time to what? To that day of which Isaiah 24 speaks. Of this singing. Notice what it says. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. What? Salvation. Salvation from what? Salvation from the judgment of Isaiah 24, which would be ours if it weren't for this salvation. You see, that would be our future if it weren't for this salvation described in Psalm 98. See why it's so important to visit these difficult texts? You see, when we ignore those texts and we ignore those texts, it's not long before no one knows anything about those texts. And then we don't understand what salvation even is. Saved from what? Saved from Isaiah 24. There's a lot of things in here, marvelous things. See the word marvelous things? Some of your translations may differ a little bit. Oh, sing to the Lord, for he has done marvelous things. See, it's not just a call to sing to the Lord, but it's pointing to some events 
It's pointing to a work of God that really requires a new, a new song. The Lord has done marvelous things. We could say, firstly, that we're singing a new song because of the wonder of the Lord. The wonder of the Lord. These marvelous things. We're talking about salvation. We talking, when we're talking about salvation, there's plenty to wonder about. W-O-N-D-E-R. The wonder, the sheer marvel of what the Lord has done to accomplish our salvation. You know, here we are. It's almost Christmas time. It's almost Christmas time. And what do we celebrate at Christmas time? We celebrate the wonder of the incarnation, don't we? The wonder of God stepping in time, space, and history in the person of Jesus Christ. Keep your place in Psalm 98. And as we're thinking about the wonder of what God has done, let's turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. A, a passage that we're going to know pretty well. We look at these passages every year, and we should look at these passages every year. We don't follow a church calendar here at Tri-State Community Church, but that having been said, uh, we, we are committed to looking at the incarnation, especially this time of the year every year. doesn't mean this is the only time of the year we look at it. We especially look at it now just as we look at the resurrection. We, we, every Lord's Day is a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but come Easter time, what do we do? Every year, we especially look at the wonder of the resurrection. But here in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, we are told about the birth of Jesus Christ. We are told it took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. Now, a betrothal, as many of you know, is an engagement, but it's a solemn engagement. Nothing like the engagements that we have today. If you're engaged in this particular time, in this particular society, you have to have a writ of divorce in order to get out of it. It's much more formal. They are engaged. And she is found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, what do you suppose Joseph is thinking? Joseph is engaged to Mary. You know, and I was thinking about this this morning, you know. I, you know, that had to have been just a complete shock to Joseph when he finds out that Mary is with child. Because we know so much about Mary's character. I mean, could you imagine? He has to be asking himself. I, I, he must be saying to himself, I have absolutely no discernment. Because this is the last thing I would have ever expected from, from Mary. And I think it's a lot of it, a lot of it is because of her character that um, we're told is he's a just man. And I think it has to do a lot with her, her character. He doesn't want to put her to shame. Uh, but he's resolved to divorce her quietly. He's resolved to divorce her quietly. And in verse 20, as he considers these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, when we think about the wonder of the salvation from Psalm 98, what could, we, what could be more marvelous than... Jesus being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. Marvelous things. Now in verse 21, the angel continues, 
and says she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. More to wonder, isn't it? A virgin birth. A child conceived by the Holy Spirit a virgin birth, but more than a virgin birth, more than simply a miracle of a virgin birth, but Almighty God stepping into time, space, and history in the person of Jesus Christ, whose name is Emmanuel, God with us. The psalmist says, sing a new song. You know, sing a new song. You know, that song that we've been singing that we got from the Garden of Eden, that song is a good song, but it's not appropriate any longer. You know the song that I'm talking about? Does everyone know the song I'm talking about? Let's turn there. I'm looking at your faces. I can only see your eyes of many of you. But go to Genesis, Genesis 3.15. You can let go of Matthew. You're going to run out of fingers if I keep it up. But Genesis 3.15. And this is the song in the garden. It had, you know, and I'm using this figuratively, but this had to have been such a beautiful melody. Why? Because it's the first gospel proclamation that is ever made in Scripture, and it's made by God Himself. God is the gospel preacher Himself. Adam and Eve have rebelled against Him in the garden, and the Lord comes to them and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That is, He is speaking to Satan Himself, and between your offspring and her offspring, and here is the song. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the gospel song. Namely, that a son is going to be born and this son is going to redeem you from the clutches of the evil one. That's a great song. But it's time for a new song. That song is looking forward to the Savior who's promised to come. But, I, but Psalm 98 is looking prophetically down to the, to the Savior who has come. It's time for a new song. Does that make sense? Let's go back to Psalm 98. We see these marvelous things. We're going to see more marvelous things as we go, but let's move to the second thing that the Psalter is pointing out to us here. He says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. There's the wonder of the Lord. And here is the power of the Lord. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. This involves the power of the Lord. The power of the Lord. That's what's meant by the figurative language of the hand, the right hand, His holy arm. That's meant His strength, the strength of the Lord, the power of the Lord. Now, as we think about the wonder, the power of the Lord, let's think about what we've been saved from. What has Jesus come to save us from? He's come to save us from the dominion of sin, for example. Jesus comes in the person of Jesus, or the, the Lord comes in the person of Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, lives a perfect life, goes throughout the Holy Land performing all of these miracles. We've been looking at these miracles in our study of John's Gospel, haven't we? We're told in Chapter 2 of John's Gospel, he performed many signs and wonders when he was in uh, Jerusalem during that first Passover, which John records for us. And we know that he heals a man who was invalid for 38 years. Here, Jesus shows his power against disease. And Jesus 
will, re, uh, will raise Lazarus, if we continue to study, he will raise Lazarus in chapter 11, showing his power over death. Lazarus is in the grave for four days, and Jesus, at his very command, says, Lazarus, come out. And what does Lazarus do? Look at the incredible power in that, where Jesus looks right into the eyes of death and says, give him back. And what does death do? It immediately gives him back. It's powerless under Christ's word, isn't it? And he says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. You imagine what it was like to hear those words come from his mouth and then see your brother walk out of that tomb in his grave claws. Oh, sing a new song, says Psalm 98. The psalmist says, sing. You see, that old song in the garden, that's a great song. But we got to write a new song because look what the Lord is doing. Look what the Lord has done. Here is a new song altogether. We think of sin. You know, it occurred to me while I was preaching a couple of weeks ago, you know, I was thinking about the subject. In fact, I had a talk with Alex in the hallway about it. This is where me and Alex often have our theological discussions is right in the hallway. And I was suggesting, you know, and I haven't done this in a long time. I seem to have forgot. But a lot of times when you're ministering to people and they continue to reject the gospel and you keep telling them, listen, you need the gospel. You need the gospel. And they'll, they'll make comments like, well, you must really think I'm some kind of bad sinner or something. And, you know, I haven't done this in a long time and I don't know why I quit. But it's so effective. Because you can say, well, listen, all right, if, if you don't need a Savior, then quit sinning. Just stop. Don't sin no more. Sound good enough? I mean, now let me put it in parentheses here that even if you could walk perfectly from this point forward, what are you going to do about all the sin you've already committed? But that's a story for another day. For right now, just to demonstrate the dominion of sin over an unbelieving heart, quit. Just quit. Don't sin no more. Listen, they're not going to make it 10 minutes. In fact, they're not, they're not going to make it at all because they're still in unbelief, which is sin, isn't it? If the entire human race, all 7 billion of us, decided to unite and, and, and yoke ourselves together for one purpose, one purpose only, we are going to destroy sin. We're going to put all of our strength together. We're going to put all of our wits together. We're going to put all of our wisdom together. We're going to put all of our intellect together. We couldn't beat it. We wouldn't be able to beat it. But sing a new song. Sing a new song because the moment that a person puts their faith and trust in Jesus, guess what? The, the dominion of sin is broken. How is it broken? It's broken by the mighty hand and power of our Lord, isn't it? Broken by his hand. Otherwise, we're in Isaiah 24, aren't we? We're all in Isaiah 24. And if that's the case, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, right? Apostle Paul teaches us that. Oh, we got better, we got better word than that. Sing a new song for his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Not only has he broke the power of sin, but he's broke the power of death. Initially, I was going to go into chapter 25 of Isaiah, because in chapter 25 of Isaiah, we see the death of death. That's what that chapter really talks about. John Owen, and I've mentioned this before, I don't remember when, but I've mentioned it to you before that John Owen wrote a famous book called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. And Jesus is, can any of us beat death? Can any of us, can any of us look death in the, in, the, in the eyes and say, you know what? Death, you will be no more. We're trying. 
trying to live these long lives. We're trying to live uh, forever. But guess what? Death is right there, isn't it? It's right at our door. But his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. By the power of our Lord, he has defeated death. And how does he defeat death? By dying on the cross, doesn't he? We could add to that hell too. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What's that mean? That means hell has been hell has been destroyed for us. If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, Romans 8 1, there's your promise. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. His right hand and his holy arm have broken and destroyed hell for us, haven't they? Call for a new song, isn't it? His wonder, his power. Let's skip down and look at his faithfulness to verse 3. He has remembered his steadfast love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. Well, we've already looked at one of his promises, Genesis 3.15. The Lord comes to Adam and Eve, and he preaches the gospel in the garden, doesn't he? He promises a son. He's made good on that son. He himself steps into, person, steps into time, space, and history in the person of Jesus Christ doesn't he? Emmanuel, God with us. There is the son promise. But God makes promises to Abraham, doesn't he? You know, in our study of Genesis, when we were going through Genesis verse by verse, really chapter by chapter, that was an extensive study, wasn't it? And some of you will recall, it was a while ago, but some of you will recall the promises made to Abraham where God says to Abraham, look up at the stars. See if you can count those stars. And if you can count those stars, so will you be able to count your offspring. And Abraham's name was once Abram, wasn't it? Which meant exalted father, which was kind of pun, wasn't it? Some Bible interpreters and commentators make a lot out of that. Look at this guy. His name's Abram, and he doesn't have any children. Abram means exalted father. The Lord changes his name to Abraham, which means father of many or father of the faithful. And that's why the New Testament teaches us rightly that if you're in Christ Jesus this morning, you are a son or a daughter of Abraham. Promises made, promises kept, faithfulness. Our Lord is faithful. What about the promises made to Moses? Moses said, after me will come a prophet like me. To him you shall listen. Deuteronomy 18, 15, right? He is coming, Jesus. How about the prophets? You know, we were looking at Isaiah, and we've already looked at one of Isaiah's prophecies. We could look at many more. Isaiah says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. He has made good on those promises. He made good on the promise of Isaiah 52 uh, and Isaiah 53, namely the promise that we call the suffering servant promise. He's made good on that. Jesus suffers and dies on the cross in fulfillment of that detailed prophecy. We think of the Psalter. The Psalter has psalms in it that are prophetic. Psalm 22, for example. And the psalm that we come to this morning, Psalm 98. We think of the promises to David. Joseph, we read the passage from Matthew 1. Joseph is, it is mentioned by the angel that Joseph is a son of David. You are a son of David. What's so important about that? Because the Lord made a promise to David that one of his sons would dwell on his throne forever. That's a promise made to the house of Israel. In fact, that's one of their chief and fundamental promises. They're looking for a king. God has made good on that promise. He has remembered, verse 3, Psalm 98, verse 3, He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. 
our Lord. We see the wonders of his salvation. We see the power of his salvation. We see the faithfulness of his salvation. And we also see the revelation, if you will. If you look at verse 2, the Lord has made known his salvation. He has made it known. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. And if you look at the last line of verse 3, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. What is this all pointing to? It's pointing to the fact that the Lord has made this known. And he's not just made this known to Israel. He's made it known to all of the earth. And this is a wondrous thing. This is a marvelous thing. And, and now we have other connections to Isaiah 24, don't we? Because the, the singing that we hear in verse 14 and 15 and 16 initially comes from the West, doesn't it? How does that happen? Because our Lord, on the third day, after he had been crucified, he was raised, wasn't he? And then he ascends to the right hand of the Father, to the right hand of God Almighty. And then he sends the Holy Spirit down upon his church, empowering his church to take the gospel out to all ends of the world. And here we are in Chester, West Virginia, nearly two, cent two millennia later, and what are we doing? Studying Psalm 98. <laughs> Sing a new song. Doesn't this call for a new song? Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. He has done powerful things. He is faithful, and he has revealed this to all the ends of the earth. Verse 4, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. See the reference there to all of the earth, to all of the earth. Break forth, forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of the melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. This isn't to be a quiet song. Trumpets aren't quiet. If you've got, a, if you've got someone in the house that's learning how to play the trumpet, you know when they're practicing, don't you? There's no way to pipe that down. This is not meant to be piped down. This is meant to be, it's meant to be shouted from the housetops with trumpets and the sound of the horn, with a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Now look at verses 7 and 8. Remember I mentioned in, in, in Isaiah 24, verse 5, that the, that the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. You remember that? And I said there's a connection. The earth is cursed. Why? Because of the rebellion of humanity. The earth is cursed. It lies defiled under its inhabitants. But look at verse 7. Let the sea roar. Now, many of us like the ocean. My wife loves the ocean. And what she likes is to walk along the beach and just hear the sound of the, of the waters come right up against the, uh, the beach and then flow back in and then come in. And many of you like that, don't you? You love that sound. But what about the sound of a roaring wave? What does that typically do to us? That's horrifying, isn't it? And it usually means something is being destroyed, doesn't it? It's wrathful, is my point. Oftentimes it's wrathful. But notice here, the sea is being called into the choir. The sea is being invited into the orchestra to, to carry on the bass. 
You want to talk about, you want to get some bass. You want to get, you want to get some folks that can handle the bass. Call the roaring waves in. They can handle that. When them waves break, them huge waves like that, it makes a sound, doesn't it? And here the sea is being brought into the orchestra. It's being brought into the joyous singing, and it's not threatening. It's awe-inspiring. Same thing about the rivers. Some people love the sound of those rapids. People who, who get, in, get in kayaks and what have you and, and go down those, those rapids. I don't know. They got numbers for them. There's certain degrees of these rapids. Uh, it's not my thing. Uh, but many people like to do that. They like to get in these rafts and go down these. And the sound of that water, they love the sound of that water. But generally speaking, we don't like the sound of that water because the sound of that water, I think the Weather Channel likes the sound of that water. But for most of us, we don't like the sound of that water because it means things are getting destroyed, doesn't it? And it means lives could be taken. But here the river is called into the choir. Hey, let's bring the river in. Let's have the river. Let's, let's bring the river in. Let's bring in her mid-ranges. And the hills, let the hills sing for joy. The mountains, verse 9, before the Lord. See, it says He comes to judge the earth. This is pointing to the consummation of all things. It's prophetic. It's pointing, it's pointing to uh, verses 14, 15, and 16. Of Isaiah 24, I'm convinced of it. I never put that together till this week, but I'm convinced. We want to know more about that singing that we hear in verses 14, 15, and 16 in Isaiah 24. We turn to Psalms 96, 97, and especially Psalm 98, because here comes the Lord. The Lord reigns. He comes and He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now, we might think immediately that what this judgment is, this is a judgment upon the wicked, but I don't think that's what it is. William Binney, many, many years ago, commenting on this verse, said, no, let's not think about this as the judgment upon the wicked, because this psalm is all of praise from start to finish. It's all of praise from beginning to end. No, what's going on here is the righteous judge of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's going on here is from now on, things are going to be done righteously, I think that makes perfect sense. We could put it this way. I put in my notes here, uh, after an age of wickedness, evil, oppression, unbelief, and chaos, the Lord comes and reigns in righteousness. I think that's the proper interpretation of verse 9. What do you think? And, and, that's, and that, that allows us to make sense of Isaiah 24. Why must these terrible things in Isaiah 24 happen? Because the wickedness has to be rid of. It has to be dealt with. It has to be brought away. You see, the Lord is merciful and He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. And He calls people to come to Him. And He calls people to come to Him. He calls people to come to Him. But there is a day when this age will end and the Lord will do away with this wickedness. He will not put up with it forever. And when Jesus returns and ushers in the new heavens and the new earth, things are going to be done properly. There will be no more evil, no more wickedness, no more oppression, no more unbelief, no more chaos, for the Lord will reign with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Righteousness will be 100% pure and prevailing everywhere you look. 
Well, that'll preach in the hour that we find ourselves in here in the United States, won't it? Now, as I move to close, just one thought, you know, as I was spending time with this, you know, this call to sing a new song and this call to make a joyful noise can be oppressive sometimes when you don't feel like singing. And I, I can tell you just from personal experience, the reason I know this is I've actually felt really guilty at different times when I've read psalms like this and I thought, you know, I don't feel like singing. I just don't really feel... There's all kinds of reasons why we might not, even this morning, feel like singing. Lots of things can happen to us. Sometimes we can be so exhausted that we just don't feel like singing. We're just too tired. Sometimes we can be burdened with sin. Sometimes maybe we've just received really bad news. Well, you feel like crying then, not singing. Maybe there's been a tragedy. Maybe you're being persecuted. I can remember coming to some psalms like Psalm 96, 97, 98 and feeling really guilty because I don't feel like singing. But then, but then I'm reminded. I'm reminded. Let's think about the psalms. Let's think about the Psalter as a collection of psalms. Are they always singing for joy? No way. That's what can be so oppressive about a lot of your modern um, contemporary worship music is that it's always on a high note. And the idea behind it is we're going to be positive and encouraging all the time. That's so out of touch with life because life isn't always positive and encouraging all the time, is it? That's, that's ridiculous. And it's oppressive to people that are going through tough times. You'd be saying, listen, sing. Listen, sing. What's your problem? When we look at the Psalter of the Hall, we find a whole bunch of laments, don't we? Where people are lamenting. We find one psalm where the depression has overcome the, psal the psalmist to such a degree that there is no pitch of hope in the entire psalm to be found. And that's because the this, this, this Psalter is completely 100% in touch with reality. I don't want anyone here this morning to feel like I have felt so many times and to leave here and walk out of here this morning saying, he says we need to sing and the psalm says we need to sing for joy, but I don't feel joyous. Listen, be of good cheer. If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, if you are in Christ Jesus, don't worry about whether you feel like singing this morning or not. Worry about whether you're in Christ. Are you in Christ with a childlike faith, trusting him, trusting his life, trusting in what he has done in your place? Concern yourself with that. Because if the answer to that is yes, I've got good news for you. You may not feel like singing right now, but you're going to sing. You're going to sing on that day. And you're going to have a perfect voice to sing with. And you're going to accompany the saints who have gone before you in your song. You're going to accompany the angels of heaven with your song. And you're going to accompany the base of those roaring waves in the mid-ranges of those rivers. And whatever noises the hills make, I don't know what noises they make. 
You're going to be in it all. And every tear is going to be wiped away, isn't it? And all of this has been made possible. How? Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. He's with us. He's with us in our joy. He's with us in our tears. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we praise you this morning. We may not feel like singing. Maybe we do feel like singing. Then let us sing. But we may be burdened with many things, and some of us are. I know some of us are burdened very heavily. Burdened with, burdened with all kinds of things, Lord. But Father, we, we look to this psalm and we see this it in its prophecy. We see that we will sing. We will sing. If we are in you, we will sing. We will be part of the voices of Isaiah 24, verses 15, 14, 15, and first half of 16. We'll be a part of the prophetic song of Psalm 98. We'll be part of the singing of Psalms 96, 97, and 98. Oh, Father, how wonderful it will be on that day. All the glory and all the praise is yours. Now let us sing this new song. In Jesus' name, amen.